Behold, the miracle of the birds and the bees. Or, more accurately in this case, the raccoons and the rodents. John Waters has always been equally fascinated and repulsed by the wonders of the animal kingdom. This much was apparent from the moment Divine ate an actual rotting cow heart in Multiple Maniacs, not to mention the giant lascivious lobster, or the questionable killing and subsequent cooking of a chicken after it was subjected to a brutal erotic dalliance in Pink Flamingos, giving Alfred Hitchcock and Tippi Hedren a run for their money. It is only natural that the Pope of Trash would gravitate towards rats for inspiration. They are a noble yet misunderstood vermin, the hapless guardians of the sewers, stigmatized for their proximity to waste and contagion, and Baltimore was perpetually infested with them. One of Waters' hometown heroes dedicated her life to getting rid of these subterranean pests. Baltimore has a tradition of great eccentrics. Any town that gave you Madeline Murray O'Hare and Spyro Agnew has to have something going for it. One local do-gooder has my complete respect, and I think the city of Baltimore should give her an honorary dinner and place her in their Hall of Fame. Her name is Mrs. Mack, but she is more widely known as the Rat Lady. Every day she climbs into her van, the Ratmobile, and searches slum neighborhoods for rats to kill. Concerned citizens call her to alert her to any rat trouble spots. Her volunteer helpers kill the rats with sticks, but Mrs. Mack actually chases the rats and grabs them with her bare hands. They wouldn't dare bite me, she is often quoted in the newspapers and on TV. I am incredibly jealous of her mission in life, and if someday I decide to retire from filmmaking, I hope Mrs. Mack will find room for me aboard her rat patrol. This early attachment to urban critters might explain Waters' lifelong admiration for Alvin and the Chipmunks, who Waters hopes to be placed next to on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. What? You've never seen a chipmunk in first class before? Well, actually, I recently flew next to the chipettes, and they were ladies. Hey, don't judge me! I saw pink flamingos! It was 1977 that would prove to be the year of the rat for the Dreamlanders with the release of Desperate Living, which heavily featured a still from its opening credit sequence in its contentious yet infectious promotional campaign. New York City restaurateurs were reportedly displeased to have the image of a cooked rat on a fancy dinner plate, garnished with a lemon wedge and paired with a glass of Cabernet, plastered on the windows of their upscale eateries. Things are heating up for the gang with a project tentatively called Rotten Mind, Rotten Face, which calls for some tricky trampoline gymnastics and a couple of hot beef injections. What happens when you take a defunct lesbian separatist newsletter, a neighborhood weave specialist, a performance collective of psychedelic drag queens from San Francisco, the gender-bending antics of Little Richard, and the penitentiary paintings of John Wayne Gacy, and mix them all together in an oversized slop bucket? You'll have to join me at the bottom of the barf bag to find out. We might meet some stomach-churning chums along the way, like author, musician, and dancer Brontes Purnell. I want to start and fuck every boy in the fucking neighborhood. And writer, theorist, and film historian Annie Rose Malamud. Queer aesthetics often embrace fatness as another form of transgression against the status quo. Thrills, chills, and spills most certainly await you. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector, Kamikaze Jones. 
And this is pure garbage. An oral examination of John Waters. It's pure is presented by Wussy Magazine in collaboration with OutTV and Double Scorpio. Whether getting sodomized by lizard people in the apocalyptic visions of Greg Araki, or slithering through an anime tentacle tryst on your office computer, Double Scorpio is sure to help you probe the deepest, darkest, and dankest recesses of the cinematic galaxy. Mmm, mmm, Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Pure Garbage, Episode 4. Large and in charge. The world premiere of Pink Flamingos was scheduled at the University of Baltimore in late 1972. Opening night was packed. Most of the stars showed up in ludicrous outfits, stoned out of their minds, extremely proud of their accomplishment, but worried sick that the audience might somehow turn hostile. Even the dog, who was about to become infamous, made a star entrance wearing a jeweled collar brought especially for the occasion. I hid in the projection room, pacing back and forth, chain-smoking cools. But as soon as the film began, I knew I had a hit. The audience roared with laughter in the right places and shrieked in horror in others. New Line agreed to take on the film. I convinced them to open it at midnight at the Elgin Theater, the most popular film buff hangout in Manhattan. The Elgin agreed to show it one night at midnight. The reaction was great, and the Elgin agreed to try it one more time the next weekend. As I nervously approached the theater the following weekend, I was thrilled to see a huge line wrapped around the block. Hey, I think you got a hit, said a surprise distributor. Word of mouth did it all. New York Magazine started the ball rolling by calling it the nearest American film to Bunuel's Andalusian dog, and Fran Lebowitz cinched its success by describing it as one of the sickest movies ever made and one of the funniest. The big critics had to wait in line to put it down, and even Vincent Canby panned it, not once, but twice on the front page of the New York Times Sunday Entertainment section. My own favorite review came from the Detroit Free Press, like a septic tank explosion, it has to be seen to be believed. In the wake of Pink Flamingo's success on the midnight movie circuit, the Dreamlanders began to capitalize on their newfound notoriety. Divine and Mink Stoll moved to San Francisco in 1973 to embrace the burgeoning experimental theater scene, where the queer psychedelic performance collective, the Coquettes, welcomed them with open arms, greeting Divine at the airport in full drag, cosplaying an eager paparazzi with camera flashbulbs and hand-painted banners declaring their undying love for the most beautiful woman in the world. This extreme beauty was gradually curated by makeup artist and long-term collaborator Van Smith. I have a makeup man, Van, and uh, he is totally responsible for... He is my faith. In the past, when I've been interviewed, they always talk about B-movies and stuff. It wasn't. It was high fashion. And if you go back to the 60s and uh, look, I mean, the models wore lots of makeup. 
And that's really where it came from. I said to Van, do something weird with his hair. And I didn't know what. And he got off the plane and took the wig off, and the hair was shaved back like this. And that was the signature look, kind of. And the real reason was that, to give more room for eye makeup. That the human head did not have enough room for the eyebrows that we had in mind. Uh, there's so much makeup on her that, you know, certain things that happen, certain instances, actions in the movie that uh, cause it to wipe off or, you know, has to be restored. One time, she, I mean, she, one time we didn't have time, so she just slept in it, got up the next day, and it was still fresh. I put it on so thick it just stays there. So that was nice, wrapped her face in toilet paper. You know, you can't find anything in my size <laughs> like this on the rack. Women my size just don't wear these sort of things. Waters wrote Divine a special nightclub act for her early appearances at the Palace Theater. Dressed in skin-tight capri pants and seven-inch heels, which had to be custom-made in steel to support her ample build, Divine would frantically appear on stage with a rickety grocery cart full of dead mackerel, manically flinging the fish at the audience while recounting her latest violent exploits. The Coquettes would stage surreal parodies of Broadway musicals using elaborate thrift store costumes and copious amounts of hallucinogens, with titles such as Hell's Harlots or Tinsel Tarts in a Hot Coma amongst their repertoire. The young androgynous soon-to-be disco icon Sylvester was a member of their troupe, which would eventually join Divine in the nocturnal dream show Divine Saves the World, Journey to the Center of Uranus. The plot featured Divine hijacking a plane to Cuba, seducing Fidel Castro, and solving various international crises with a rousing rendition of Hey Big Spender. In the late 60s, a Baltimore filmmaker by the name of John Waters began jolting the industry with a series of shockingly explicit underground films. He, in effect, created and molded the queen of the underground in the character of a 300-pound female impersonator whom he named Divine. Well, it's been over 10 years, and the phenomenal popularity of this character is stronger than ever. So popular, in fact, that he's now starring in his third or fourth stage production, which is Tom Ian's The Neon Woman, directed by Ron Link. This presentation is currently playing in might seem to be an awkward uh, surroundings for a stage production, a disco. It's actually more like a nightclub. It's called Hurrah, and it's on, located on Manhattan's Upper West Side and West 62nd Street. Of course, the critics are highly opinionated as to whether or not this unorthodox concept in theater works, but from all outward appearances, it seems to be working for everybody else. The new senator, Horace Bradley, just passed a new law against pornography, sodomy, and strip bars in Maryland. Degenerate people like you have had your day here. Yeah, we're gonna wipe this state clean. And who the hell are you, lady? I was hoping you'd ask. I'm Miss Flash Storm, the neon woman, the original flasher, the last of the pink hot strippers. Born in the trunk of a 1932 DeSoto, Who works? Yes, I said worked your way up. Bump by bump to rival the greatest strippers of our time. Gypsy Rose Lee, Sally Rand, and Corio, the late star, Natalie Wood. <laughs> These recurring motifs of exaggerated grandeur and shameless spectacle would once again manifest in the crime is beauty ideology of Waters' follow-up to Pink Flamingo's 1974's Female Trouble. 
Loosely inspired by Waters' visits to the Manson family's lieutenant, Charles Tex Watson, in prison, Female Trouble stars Divine as the disenfranchised juvenile delinquent turned attention-starved murderous Dawn Davenport. You're looking at crime personified, and don't you forget it! Who is burdened by the whims of her disapproving mother-in-law, Ida. Quiz are just better. I'd be so proud if you was a fag and had a nice beautician boyfriend. And the relentless outbursts of her illegitimate problem child, Taffy. And I wouldn't suck your lousy dick if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. And is eventually brainwashed by a pair of fascist beauticians into believing that a life of crime will bring her global stardom. You see, we are a private salon, catering to ravishing beauties only. Even one average customer would be enough to plummet our reputation forever. So we must pick and choose with great care. Female Trouble was made on a budget of $27,000, compared to the modest budget of $10,000 for Pink Flamingos, which made almost ten times its production expenses at the box office. Despite the expanded budget, Divine was still game to do all her own stunts, including sisterly bloodletting, swimming against a strong current in a freezing river, training at the YMCA to learn how to do a flip on a trampoline, and playing dual roles as both Dawn and Earl, the vile man with shit-stained tidy whities who impregnates her with a bad seed. Is Earl Peterson there? This is Dawn Davenport. Dawn Davenport! You made love to me Christmas morning. Well, I just wanted to tell you that I'm pregnant and I want money. You stole my wallet, you fat bitch! You'll never get any money from me, Cal. Just cause you got them big udders don't mean you're something special. Dawn Davenport meets an untimely end in a state of electrified delusion that rivals Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard. I'd like to thank all the wonderful people that made this great moment in my life come true. <laughs> to Waters' surprise, the warden of the Baltimore City Jail was thrilled to allow production to shoot Divine's execution scene on an uninhabited floor of the women's section going so far as to organize a screening of the finished film for the inmates upon its release. The crafty publicist Sue Salter created advanced trade interest in Female Trouble by planting a rumor in Variety that Waters was offering half a million dollars for someone to commit suicide on film. Reviews were decidedly mixed. Interview Magazine stated that the basements, backyards, and byroads of Baltimore have become as exotic and unique a landscape to me as Sternberg's Morocco. But it was Rex Reed who would provide a sentiment that was widely reappropriated to promote the picture. Where do these people come from? Where do they go when the sun goes down? Isn't there a law or something? Slowly, Don, slowly. You'll give me a heart attack. Let me give you some medicine. What kind, Donald? Is it a beauty treatment? Yes, Don, exactly. It's eyeliner. Liquid eyeliner. We cooked it down this morning. It won't hurt. Nothing hurts. Have you ever mainlined? No, but I will. Keep taking those pictures and I'll do it. Come on, shoot me! Oh. Feel it in your blood, caressing your corpuscles, the wonders of liquid eyeliner? Say it! Say liquid eyeliner! Liquid eyeliner! Tragedy struck the Dreamlanders when David Lockery died in New York from complications of a PCP overdose. Lockery's sartorial wit, weaponized haughtiness, 
An early embrace of the homosexual counterculture left an indelible impact on the lives of his co-stars. His sudden passing cast a shadow on the release of Desperate Living, which was jokingly referred to as a women's picture. Adding to this was the absence of Divine, the first feature-length Waters film to not feature him in a leading role, due to his long-term contract and touring schedule with the producers of the underground theater sensation Women Behind Bars. Divine's unavailability would lead Waters to make some creative casting decisions for Desperate Living. Desperate Living is a monstrous fairy tale comedy dealing with mental anguish, penis envy, and political corruption. Its target audience is very neurotic adults with the mentalities of eight-year-olds. The plot of Desperate Living is quite simple. Peggy Gravel, Ming Stoll, an upper-middle-class hysteric, is released from the mental hospital only to taunt her cloddish husband and abuse her terrified children. It's like war! Don't tell me! I don't know what Vietnam is like! pound maid Griselda, Jean Hill, sympathizes with her and kills Peggy's husband by sitting on him and squashing him to death. You'd better go see about your wife. She's having another mental fit. I thought you had been stealing my liquor. Ain't nobody stealing nothing from you, Mr. Gravel. Peggy and Griselda flee Baltimore, but are held captive by an oddball motorcycle cop, Turkey Joe, with a lingerie fetish who tells them about Mortville, a fantasy town where criminals can exist as long as they submit to the humiliating living conditions demanded by the Edie Amin worshipping tyrant Queen Carlotta, Edith Massey, and her gang of male goons. Her Majesty, the Honorable Queen Carlotta of Mortville. Welcome to Mortville, ladies. I read in the big city papers that you are wanted for murder. The murder of a certain Mr. Brosley Gravel. We only... You are interrupting my flow of power. Give these peasants a little dinner, Lieutenant Wilson. I bet they're hungry after a long day of breaking laws. Here, nice live room. Oh, no. Arriving in Mortville to seek criminal amnesty, Peggy and Griselda rent a room from Mole McHenry, Susan Lowe, a super masculine lady wrestler and her 50-year-old girlfriend, Muffy St. Jacques, Liz Renee, an oversexed murderess accused of smothering her babysitter in a bowl of dog food. Liz Renee was my idea of total glamour. Her life was filled with adventures and insanity and read like a script from one of my own films. 
Born in Arizona and raised by fanatical religious parents, Liz ran away to become a winner of a Marilyn Monroe look-alike contest. She advanced her career to V-Girl during the war, Showgirl, and Hollywood Starlet, and eventually became gangster Mickey Cohen's girlfriend, and soon built a reputation as a trusted mafia mall. Refusing to cooperate with authorities in prosecuting such gangland figures as Anthony Trigger Mike Coppola, Liz was found guilty of perjury in 1961 and sentenced to three years in Terminal Island Prison in California. In jail, Liz claimed she fought off the lesbians and began writing her autobiography, originally entitled Headlines and Heartaches. Once she was released from prison and the retitled My Face for the World to See became a big seller, Liz was back in the welcome glare of publicity and became a burlesque queen. To promote her new career, she ran completely nude at the age of 47 down Hollywood Boulevard at the height of the streaking fad in 1974. As 3,000 amused onlookers cheered her nude arrest, Liz commented to the press, I've often thought that if I was born ugly, I could have devoted myself to art and been famous already. The case received so much publicity that the irate judge issued a gag order forbidding Liz to give interviews. When the eight-man, four-woman grand jury found her not guilty of the indecent exposure charge, after requesting to review the taped account of her streak, Liz emerged victorious and resumed her burlesque career with some fresh publicity, the streaking grandmother. Now it's time for Cookie's Corner in which the poet Kay Gabriel invokes the renegade spirit of writer, actress, and dreamlander Cookie Mueller by reading from her recently reissued collection, Walking Through Clear Water in a Pool Painted Black. It's Cookie's Corner. The following segment describes how Cookie served as accidental inspiration during a bout of poor health in Provincetown. I'd just woken up in a hospital bed. I didn't know where, but it didn't matter. I felt great, clean, and very neat. My hair was parted down the middle with two tight braids ending in white surgical rubber bands. John Waters and Mink Stoll laughed at me when they saw me with this hairdo in the hospital bed. So it didn't turn out to be appendicitis, so what is it? What's wrong with you? John asked and got comfortable on the foot of the bed. Female trouble, I said. It was a catch-all phrase and he found this term very funny. So funny, in fact, it became the title for his next movie. The title for Desperate Living would also come from an unlikely source, that of a defunct Baltimore lesbian newsletter. Some second-wave feminists did not take kindly to this usage, but they weren't the only group of activists that had a bone to pick with Waters. He had also received a furious letter from a representative of the Baltimore Mental Patients Liberation Front, who characterized his work as oppressive to the mentally ill and indicative of sane chauvinism. Tom Allen of the Village Voice said, I dare anyone not to take John Waters seriously after desperate living. He remains the visionary of camp and the den mother of the bazaar. This film is a triumphant example of the most vital bad taste in America. In a later interview with Andy Cohen, John Waters would say this about his work being classified as camp. I would never say the word camp out loud. It's like for old queens and antique shops talking about Rita Hayworth movies.
all aboard the Degenerate Express. It's time for this week's special guest. Here at Pure Garbage, we hope to cultivate a network of community and care by harnessing the radical queer power of the putrid. We are thrilled to engage with artists, performers, writers, and historians who are directly involved or have directly inherited John Waters' legacy of filth. I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest this week, writer, musician, dancer, and director, Brontes Purnell. Brontes Purnell is a recipient of the 2022 Lambda Literary Award for Gay Fiction for his novel 100 Boyfriends. He is the creator of the zine Fag School, frontman for the punk band The Younger Lovers, and founder of the Brontes Purnell Dance Company. On any given day, you can catch Brontes on Instagram giving lessons in fuckboy etiquette or talking about cultured bussy with Azalea Banks. Please give a warm and filthy welcome to Brontes Purnell. I want to say I saw like a coarse hairspray on TV when I was like little, probably like five or six. And then, of course, it was Crybaby was my favorite one. Like that was like the early 90s. But then I think when I was a teenager, I finally got like pink flamingos like somewhere when I was like 15 or whatever. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Oh, my God. Am I gay? I'm probably gay. No, I'm definitely gay. I'm going to be gay forever now. We both have the same publisher, FSG. And I think I was originally supposed to give like some type of blurb for his book or something like that. So that's like how we entered like our hub hub together. Some people just like like to do fucked up shit for the sake of doing fucked up shit. But John will always have like the 3000 word essay behind why he made each choice, which is what I think makes him like, you know, a connoisseur and an intellectual and a gentleman. How do you identify with Cookie? Oh, I just think her prose and kind of her writing and her life just, I don't know, it's always kind of amazing. And I feel like it's the era now where we get to learn more about Cookie and just the last couple of years, so many books have been coming out about her life and a lot of her work is being reissued and reexamined. And I definitely think that she's the more literary hand of that type of pantheon of filth people or whatever, filth connoisseurs. And I don't know, I just, I like it onto her more. I feel like I'm more of a daughter of Cookie. Rock and roll and like counterculture and Bay Area counterculture are still very important things to him and things that are still like kind of hallmarked, you know, it's it's changed so much in the Bay. It's changed so much everywhere, but kind of like the rudiments of the rudiments of where he started. And I think hanging out with the Cockettes probably had a huge like impact on how he felt about this landmass. And the last year we really got to kick it was at the Mosswood Halloween meltdown And I was completely naked in gold glitter and like leaves and like, you know, a flower arranged hat. He kind of just looks over and he's like, ah, Brontes, hi. That's the first time I remember being like, ah, Brontes, hi. Well, I grew up in Tennessee Williams. Like I'm from Alabama. And actually the Whiting Award that I got was the Tennessee Williams Award for fiction for my book since I laid my burden down. I felt like I started reading Flannery O'Connor before I really understood what John Waters' movies were, kind of, in a, in a little way. I remember reading Good Country People when I was in about sixth grade and just understanding it immediately as this really, really potent satire, using very dark edges to kind of, like, describe 
you know, a lot of religious hypocrisy, isolation, desolation, desperation. You know, that's kind of what John's John's work does too. The satirical nature of it to teach a lesson. It's something that, I don't know, it's a little more dangerous these days, you know, because I feel like things like irony and satire are so weaponized against us almost. Sometimes I'm like, am I transgressive? I feel like my work uses, my work is so like humorous and there's it's so much, it's so pleasurable. And more often than not, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So I don't know if my work really operates under the transgressive lens. We're just in a whole other period where these terms that really meant something, you know, maybe like 50 or 40 years ago, that definitely meant something have like kind of shifted. And I just, I like fucked up shit that makes me laugh and kind of makes me think. And I don't know, but also more importantly, kind of gives me some type of like understanding or like hope about humanity. I've never felt like a renaissance man. I just knew that I needed a paycheck and I couldn't wait around for people to help me. I think I think a lot of this polymath stuff is based in a fucking we live in a crazy gig economy. So much art is democratized. I think that whenever we use sex to delineate what is human or kind of glitchy about us i think that that's amazing porn is weaponized against us in such a crazy way because in mainstream porn the values embedded in it are inherently conservative it's all about a specific type of body type very strict sexual roles i think the thing i love most about john waters is he's He's one of those artists that is definitely receiving his flowers within his lifetime. I think through all of it, the money was never on him to have this kind of like career at first, like break into mainstream Hollywood, do all that rigmarole, and then kind of, I don't know, in a weird way, both expand and kind of return from the soil from which he came. It's, It's very, very, very inspiring to watch him. Thank you, Brontes, for leaving all 100 of your boyfriends for me. Up next is writer, theorist, and film historian Annie Rose Malamut. Annie Rose Malamut is a leather dyke and self-described lesbian vampire and host of the wildly popular queer film podcast Girls Guts Giallo. Please welcome my sister in filth, Annie Rose Malamut. So John Waters does this really interesting thing in a lot of his films where he ties blackness and fatness together in this very radical way. And these are things that fat activist communities have been talking about since the 1970s. But in his films, John Waters actually ties racism and fat phobia together as these connected forms of oppression and in desperate living jean hill is like this gorgeous black fat woman in this really outlandish role and just the way that her fatness and her blackness is celebrated and beautified is very in line with how John Waters represents fatness as this sort of abject thing, but the abjection being the apotheosis of the filthy radical that he celebrates. Part of Desperate Living being like a 
a take on like the women in prison genre and like having that love scene between her and Mink and like, you know, that being her kind of a relinquishing this like suburban life or this idea of a nuclear family is really fascinating. Absolutely. And I love that fat people fuck in John Waters films. Uh, You know, there's that scene you're talking about in Desperate Living. And there's also, of course, Pink Flamingos. Anything that goes against the mainstream is celebrated in these films. And John Waters recognizes fatness as something that is against the mainstream and the transgressive potential of that just screaming about how gorgeous she is and what a gigantic slut she is. And it's like a high sort of camp version of the way people think of fat women. And it takes that sexlessness that fat women are sort of imbued with and just like totally fucks with it and perverts it. And even films that we know John Waters loves, like Sallow, has these kind of like grotesque, fat prostitute (laughs) characters. In contemporary fat activist spaces and body positive spaces, uh, which is like the more mainstream liberal version of fat activism, in my opinion, There's this idea of like, oh, well, just because someone is fat, that doesn't mean they're unhealthy. It doesn't mean they eat a lot. It doesn't mean they're super indulgent. And I think all of those things are true. However, I'm more interested in the John Waters school of thought, which is like, well, maybe they do. And so what? Fuck you. Fuck all of these rules. Maybe this fat woman does indulge all of her desires and wants and to the point of excess. And so fucking what? (laughs) You know, in John Waters films, the villains are the heroes of the story. Or he flips it around where you the people that you normally imagine as the villains or the heroes like in something like Hairspray where the skinny blonde white women are actually the villains and everyone else is the hero or people are just villains and we celebrate them like in Pink Flamingos. It's specifically Divine playing the mother, and that's part of the fun of the film because we as fans already know all of Divine's other work. And then there's also this really radical undercurrent where fat phobia and racism are tied together as forms of oppression And there's a fat black woman character played by Ruth Brown as Motormouth Maybell. And it shows how fatness is partly derided because it's associated with blackness historically. And there's these moments in the film where these characters like Debbie Harry as the proto-Karen asks Divine if Ricky Lake of Tracy Turnblad is quote-unquote a mulatto and part of that is because one she cares about civil rights so of course the only way a white person could care about that is if 
you know, they have a personal connection to it. And John Waters highlights that as well. But also this idea of like, what's wrong with your body and associating it with this abject form of blackness that the white imagination has really clung to since the days of Sarchi Bartman and the hot and tot Venus. Within film and television, fat women have been allowed to inhabit a couple of roles, um, like the sidekick or the caretaker. And then more specifically within those, we have the subtypes of like the mammy figure um, and even going up into contemporary films like The Help, Octavia Spencer in The Help from 2011, or her role as the mammy villain in Ma in 2019, which is kind of supposed to be like a flipping the mammy archetype on its head. Like what if she were to become the villain? So it's also important in Hairspray that John Waters does not fall into that trope as well of like the fat white woman finding love with a black man. Not that there's anything wrong with that in real life, but in film, that is often used as a way to perpetuate racism and anti-fatness. So it's an interesting departure from the norm because a lot of contemporary representation is quite neoliberal in the way that it clings to like identity politics, like the empowered uh, body positive fat woman like Barbie Ferreira and Euphoria, you know, who's like barely fat. <laughs> Nicole Byers work, I think, is the only thing I can think of that reaches that level. She is so in control of her own image and really flouts this idea of respectability and talks about these very real things and also talks about her insecurities and her issues being a fat black queer woman in dating. Um, so she's the only person, and I think she would be great in a John Waters movie. <laughs> I could say that there are fat drag queens who are doing that, and of course, like in individual communities. Drag as a spectacle is so like liberal fied now with RuPaul's Drag Race kind of leading the charge on that, that um, I don't think that the fat queens who have been involved in that show have fully been able to really reach that level of subversive performance. It's really hard to find subversive work which is part of why the queer community cherishes John Waters so much because he's been able to have this really successful career making these really transgressive radical works of art next time on pure garbage we will peel back the noxious layers of 1981's polyester I look into my future and all I see is a long, dark highway filled with endless toll booths, no exits. I'll be quite blunt with you, Cuddles. I think my marriage is on the rocks. And handles some highly flammable materials in 1988's Hairspray. Your ratted hair is preventing yet another student's geometry education. It's feathered, not ratted. Whatever you 
call it. It's a hair don't. Along for the journey will be the elephant queen, Eureka O'Hara. And recording artist, mischief maker, and fisting enthusiast, Willem. For now, take your suppositories and sharpen your knives. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector, Kamikaze Jones. And this has been pure garbage. An oral examination of John Waters. It's pure Jones, produced by John Dean and Kamikaze Jones, with original music by, you guessed it, Kamikaze Jones and Christian Ruggiero. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors OutTV and Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Subscribe, rate, and review our garbage on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Garbage Pod. He's pure.